Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming to this, the 15th event in this year's London School of Economics European Institute FT Business Future of Europe series. I'm Damien Chalmers, the head of the European Institute here at the LSE. For this event, it's a great pleasure and honour to welcome Frederick Reinfeldt, the Prime Minister of Sweden and the leader of the Swedish Moderates Party, to come and speak to us today on the new Swedish model, a reform agenda for growth and environment. You're here to listen to him rather than me, but I'd just like to say a couple of words of introduction. He is the youngest person to hold the office of Prime Minister in Sweden, I understand, for over 80 years. It's fair to say that he has taken the politics of Sweden by storm. A testament that was shown in 2006, where he was voted not just the most admired politician in Sweden, but the most admired person in Sweden, something I think many of our politicians would love uh, to have. <laughs> voted to the Swedish Parliament in 1991, he courageously provoked a discussion about the future of the moderate party in the early to mid-1990s, which revitalised debate about the centre-right in Sweden. He became leader of the moderate party in 2003 and was elected Prime Minister in 2006. His, the motive of his government has been to effect change rather than simply hold office and to create, in the words of this talk, a new Swedish model, which has been characterised, at least outside Sweden, as to effect welfare state reform through eliminating welfare traps and dependencies and through relieving the fiscal burden on low and medium income groups. It will be very interesting to hear his wider views today. It has to be said, if you read about him in the British press, he has been described anglocentrically as a Swedish David Cameron. I wonder if a reversal might not be more apt, given uh, Mr. Reinfeldt's, uh, Prime Minister Reinfeldt's achievements, and David Cameron could not be described as the British Frederick Reinfeldt. In any case, you can judge for yourself. The format will be that Prime Minister Reinfeldt will speak for 25 minutes. There will then be 20 minutes of questions and answers. And they will have the privilege of a response from the Right Honourable David Cameron, the leader of the Conservative Party and Her Majesty's opposition here in the United Kingdom. He will not be known to you all, but my own personal tribute to him is that nobody has contributed more to British democracy than him during his period as Conservative leader. He has reinvigorated debate within the Conservative Party. And more interestingly, at least from my perspective, politics has become interesting in the UK with a real edginess and contestation in the marketplace of political ideas here in the UK. And that can only be good for our society. We owe him a debt and look very much forward to his contribution at the end of this discussion. But firstly, I will hope you will join me in warmly welcoming Prime Minister Reinfeldt to the, stage, to the podium. Hello. Let me first say I love British introductions. You know, <laughs> if I were to speak in Sweden and say, well, since you're, you're here, you, maybe you could say a few words. <laughs> so I think that's fantastic. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I think uh, that anybody who wants to study globalization should start at this institution. I believe you have the highest proportion of international students in the world. And they tell me that you are very smart. <laughs> you borrow four times as many books as the average UK student. <laughs> as I see it, it can be no time for Facebook or <laughs> YouTube, MySpace, something like that. 
When I went to school in Sweden, I learned two things about my country. First, we're the only superpower in the world with only nine million inhabitants. <laughs> Second, we are very humble about our greatness. <laughs> well, if you start off that way, you must understand that this country needs a model. Of course we have a model, a Swedish model. Um, and since it's now in my title says that I will talk about a new Swedish model, then the question is, of course, what was then the old one? And as you know, it has been described as a middle way between Anglo-Saxon tradition and the continental European uh, country's way of dealing with the economy and social welfare. As you know, Sweden is geographically extensive, but sparsely populated. It's a country in the northern part of Europe. We have sustain, uh, combined sustained and high rates of growth with ambitious goals for its social system and welfare services. We are just about 9 million. We are well-educated, works hard, has strong beliefs in equal rights for men and women. We are also the home of several well-known uh, well companies, uh, throughout the world, Ericsson, H&M, Ikea, and Volvo, just to mention a few. If that is, in short, Sweden, then, uh, of course, the question, is it the Swedish model? You could argue uh, that there is, has, in fact, never been a Swedish model. If there was a model, you could say it has been a Scandinavian model. Uh, and even if there were aspirations which I think they were, of a modeling kind at an earlier stage in Sweden. I think it's true to say today that you can hardly apply, uh, apply model building in today's world. In the age of globalization, open economies, growing interdependence between our different countries and also companies, of course, there is, I think, more accurate to talk about distinctive features and experiences institutional features that actually combine together is uh, the explanation of why a country is like it is. Just a few leaps then in Swedish history to explain why my country became the country of today. 1850-1870, institutions of free enterprise, market economy, well-functioning legal system, modern banking system, well-defined property rights, and an open uh, attitude towards international competition. That was the start, that was the base. Already in 1910-1920, when we got democracy established in Sweden, you could also see the first attempts to building social welfare net. I think it's very interesting that in 1913, nearly 100 years ago, they defined the pension age in Sweden to, the year, to 67 years of age. Then you should remember, at that time, 1930, the uh, or the, the expected lifetime of uh, an ordinary Swede were only 56. <laughs> That's welfare politics. <laughs> so what they thought was that nearly everyone works from very early years, and then all through their life, and then they die. And the few of them who actually do not well, they can be give a pension system 10, 15 years later. That's very interesting. That was 1913. Today, 
we have gone from a situation where we worked all through our lives and then died to a situation where we only work half our lives. And we are expected to live to see our 80th birthday, probably 90th. A lot of us will actually see, live to see our 100th birthday. That's something completely different in just 100 years' time. Imagine what that does to your welfare system, because the part when you're not working, you're asking for welfare. Mid-30s, actually 1938, we saw an agreement between the social partners that has been a model that we have stayed on until then, made lasting and stable relationships on the Swedish labor market. We had welfare services that focused on labor force participation and knowledge, and our idea was to have a clear work first principle in labor market policy and social insurance. Then to say the obvious, Sweden was not part directly of World War II, when uh, a lot of the industries were bombed in the Second World War, the Swedish was not. And all of this explains, as I see it, the institution, the historical events, why it was possible to, for Sweden to go from the poorest among the poorest to the richest among the richest in just 100 years' time. From 1950 to 1973, the annual GDP growth in Sweden averaged at 3 0.7%. Unemployment varied between 1.5% and 2%, and everyone who knows economics knows that that's not unemployment. That is shortages of labor supply at that low figures. It was lower than European average, lower than United States. At the beginning of the 1970s, we ranked number four in this OECD per capita measured as purchasing power. Fourth, Sweden was blooming. Then, came Sweden's mad quarter of a century. Growth fell off, unemployment rose, quality of welfare declined. What happened? Well, we had two oil crises. We saw a depression-like downfall of the Swedish economy in the early 90s, but that was not exclusive, exclusively a Swedish experience. This was also seen in other countries. Why did we fall from 1917th fourth place to 18th place in 1997, something else happened. I would say that the vital balance between the institutions in the model disappeared and socialism swept over the Swedish society. Budget deficits, high inflation undermined macroeconomic stability. In many respects, it was also the result of irresponsible and short-sighted political actions. We saw a sharp rise in taxes. It actually took just a few years to have a leap of 10% tax ratio of GDP in the Swedish economy. Most of, most of these taxes were put on labor, together with an expansion of benefit systems that undermined the work first principle and made it less worthwhile to work. The education system was distorted and Swedish schools focused less on knowledge. Changes in international competition that we always see were met with subsidies, not with reforms. Free enterprise was not encouraged. Instead, it was questioned. And we saw a rise in unemployment as percentage of working-age people supported by various social benefits and subsidies that rose from 10% of the population in 1970 to about 20%. It doubled to the beginning of the two, year 2000. What took a hundred years to build 
was nearly dismantled in 25. The crisis during the 1990s, of course, opened the reform agenda. It was possible, with a broad consensus in Swedish politics, to start a reform pro process. We introduced a budget reform with a cost ceiling, where we defined the cost limit for many years ahead. We had clear, clear targets for inflation and public finances that brought greater stability to the Swedish economy. The credibility of the monetary policy was also strengthened when the Riksbank, the Swedish central bank, was guaranteed independence in 1999. We shifted our pension system from a pay-as-you-go system, which actually aggregated uh, uh, a lot of deficits inside it, to a pension system more linked to growth, to what each individual would, how many years we spend in the workforce, and also linked to individually based um, portion of the pension, which should also be pointed on if you wanted to put into different stock funds that were, uh, was possible. We had a parliamentary reform that we went from three years of mandate period to four years, saying that it should be a greater space for reform when a government has the majority. We uh, then became member of the European Union. And for Sweden, that was actually deregulating a lot of markets that made an greater access to the important Sweden, uh, to the important European markets. The gov then government in the beginning of the 90s also ran a privatization program and also deregulated a lot of important markets. In all, this laid the foundation for a macroeconomic stability. In that sense, we solved a lot of the problems. We could actually see that we went to um, a surplus among our public finances. We had 10 years of very good growth figures. But the microeconomic situation had not improved. In spite of strong growth, Sweden was still perceiving with a mass unemployment. We were, in fact, a rich country, but had in part a poor and excluded population. And this was the situation when my government was elected in the year of 2000. In that year, we counted up to one and a half million in the age of working that were actually outside of the labor market or not working as much as they would like. And I mention this again, one and a half million in a country with only nine million inhabitants. And remember that we have a two million or somewhat like that who are under the age of being on the labor market, the school system, daycare, and we have 1.6 million above 65. So this is a huge portion of the ones who are in the age of working who are actually were standing aside. A large part of our public spendings was actually used to finance benefit systems or welfare services rather than schools, uh, schools, health care, or fight, fighting crime. No, the money were going somewhere else. In 2006, the people in Sweden paid the highest taxes in the world, but not for high quality in welfare services. A larger and larger amount of the public spending was used to pay these benefits to pay people of working age for not doing what they were able to do. Outside of Sweden, this high tax ratio has very often been described as 
uh, a measurement of how much welfare we want, but they never told the story of what was really inside that tax ratio. The part who actually was paying money to people for not working is, in my mind, not welfare in the sense money given to school, education, uh, health care. Social exclusion was then slowly undermining public finances, and that made this Swedish model to crumble. We call ourselves the Alliance for Sweden. That's the, we have seven parties in the Swedish parliament. Four of them at the centre-right is formed as an alliance for, for, for Sweden, a liberal party, a centre party, a Christian Democratic Party, all of them with uh, electoral support between 6 and 8 percent, and then the moderate party at 26. We have the majority in the Swedish parliament since the year 2006, and we have now said that we are taking on the major structural problem that we still have, the weak growth in employment in the private sector and the high level of exclusion. We were elected to do the job are putting Sweden back to work. We have uh, rested this on four pillars. First, make work pay. We think there is a direct connection between participation in the labour market and the difference in income from work or benefits. We are therefore consistently implementing a major in-work tax credit for low and medium earners. We already lowered income taxes with 55 million Swedish crowns or 2% of GDP in tax cuts directed to low and no normal income earners already in little more than a year of government practice. We are also step-by-step step revitalizing the work-first principles in the benefit system by reducing benefit levels and changing rules of unemployment insurance. We are also changing the rules in the sickness insurance system. We have raised the fees that you are paying for your unemployment insurance, and we have made sure that you also feel the effect if unemployment rises. In Sweden, these unemployment schemes are linked to different trade unions. They are therefore uh, reflecting different parts of the labor market. If I make a collective bargain, uh, agreement for my part of the labor market which is too high and puts up the unemployment that comes back to you with higher fees for your unemployment insurance. It's giving the system, uh, signal back that unemployment costs and that everyone has a responsibility for that. I could tell you that reshaping these benefits is not popular. I was appointed many things in year 2006, as you were kind enough to mention. I was not appointed those things in 2007. That has a link to what we have done. But we are restoring what was good principles to put work first. And to me, it's actually a matter of freedom. Because for me, it's a freedom issue to be able to support yourself, to stand on your two feats and actually by your own work be able to form your own future. To be heavily dependent on subsidies that are made out of decisions taken by others, that's a form of dependency which I think is not very good. Second, 
make it more worthwhile and easier to hire staff. Besides then implementing that work should pay more, it's also important to lower the thresholds to um, those who are most detached from the labour market, especially important in a country where so many are socially excluded from the labour market as in Sweden. We are therefore encouraging more employers to take on new employees, especially we are trying to increase the demand for labour with relatively low productivity and weak connections to the labour market. When I go around meeting companies in Sweden, their CEOs or the ones deciding who to hire tell me that we want to hire people but we can't find anyone. And if we find someone, we want you to lower the cost for employing that person. What they are telling me is that they want to find those who are as productive as the top ten performers they already have inside their company. And they want me to lower the cost for employing that person. But that person is already competitive in the labor market. What I am asking them to do is to look at a person who has been aside from the labor market for a while, who might not in the early stages be as productive, and view it as a social contract. If we lower the cost, you take the responsibility for taking someone in who has been outside for quite a while, giving the resources to learn them on the job, to do the job, and by that getting them higher up in productivity. That's the link we need. Otherwise, we will not get people into the labor market who has been long time on the side. We call this the new start jobs. The new start jobs. What we are doing is that we are taking away the social contribution they are giving totally for as long as the person they are hiring has been outside of the labor market. Four years long-term unemployed or with sick leave, four years of taking away the social contribution so as to give a greater opportunity for those who have been very far away from the labor market also to be able to come in. We have also introduced these kind of reliefs, uh, lowering thresholds for young people under the age of 25, also the ones who are above the age of 65, we are giving these kind of supports for taking in immigrants. And this is a real turnaround, if you uh, know the Swedish history. From 70s onwards, we have had a hard time getting immigrants into the labor force in Sweden. We are now saying that directly when they come to Sweden, we give you a support if you hire them in the labor market. We do not care if they can talk Swedish as long as they get a job, it's actually also easier to learn Swedish when you have a job. It's better for them to get integrated into the labor market. That is totally twisting the way we have um, dealt with or discussed integration in Sweden, and it's just starting to work. More than 50% of the new jobs now created in Sweden is coming to people born outside of Sweden, and most of the cases it's also to people are getting hired with the education that they actually have. No more academics running taxi cars in Stockholm, although there are still there a few of them, of course. Third, a better matching in the labor market. The former active labor market policy that we had in Sweden was designed to produce low unemployment figures by hiding away people who were able to work in programs created to run alongside the regular labor market. 
The programs maintained high enrollment volumes and gave too much emphasis to training measures and to measures that served to reduce the labor supply. We could actually at the same time in a booming economy have a lack of labor, feeling shortages, and have running huge programs with people on training schemes that were never linked to the labor market. That was very odd to see, but that was actually happening in Sweden. We have therefore introduced a job and development guarantee for long-term unemployed. The program includes individually designed measures and has a structure that reinforces the work-first principle. It guarantees the demands a high level of activity from participants, such as job-seeking activities, including coaching and on-the-work training. We have also reduced the number of labor market policy programs and lowered the volume of labor market policy measures to make it possible to focus more on quality. We have introduced the concept of a personal coach. We know that those working with the unemployed said that we are more or less just giving, handing them money, the subsidies. Now they have a personal coach in contact with employers to keep giving them the good say for the person who has a hard time to get into the labor market themselves. Fourth, make it more worthwhile and easier to start and run a business. As I've said, the conditions for entrepreneurship are good in Sweden in many respects. Swedes are very educated and quick to adopt new technology. The business sector is innovative with extensive research and development and good financial capacity. In international rankings of competitiveness and business climate, Sweden always scores very well. We have now done things to push on even further. We have abolished the wealth tax. We have improved the VIT system to better fit the needs of smaller companies. We have given the bankruptcy and insolvency laws an overall. We have opened up welfare service production, especially the healthcare sector, for entrepreneurship. And we are in the process of cutting red tape by 25%. All of these have already affected in the exclusion, the fact that the exclusion of, from the labor market now is falling. Last year, one Swedish citizen went from welfare to work every fourth minute. And the good news is that the trend is even growing stronger. The trend is the Swedish labor market has not actually perceived this well, performed this well for 20 years. And we are also now seeing it exactly the groups we try to pinpoint that we can see the biggest increases. We have the best inflow of young people to the labor market since the beginning of the 60s. We have out of these 1.6 million, I said, at the age of above 65, we are coming close to that 100,000 of them are still in the workforce. We are also seeing a rapid increase in the participation of women. What we have done is actually we started to take down the social exclusion. It has fallen by 2.5% in 18 months, but of course we need to do even more. This also links, of course, the question to the education system, the quality, the fact that Swedish school system, the children learn to less and that we have also introduced reforms to make sure that every child 
is seen and get better support, especially in the early years of the school uh, system, so that we stop what we are actually now doing, repairing the lack of knowledge that they have throughout their years of school and education also at university level. We um, are also looking, of course, in that sense to require well-educated teachers, which is extremely important to also get a better functioning uh, education system. To that, we are also preparing to increase the budget for research and development, which is, of course, extremely important to lay the foundation for growth in the future that will also have discussions regarding investments in infrastructure. A widespread country in the northern parts of Europe needs a lot of infrastructure to actually be able to, to work better. We have started to do the work of getting people back to work, and we have still some more things to do. If exclusion from the labor market is our national challenge, the issue of the climate and the environment is a global challenge. For me, it's easy to say that global warming is for real. It's already happening. No one these days can be left unaffected by the reports or pictures. For those of us who have been at Svalbard, I know that David has been there as well, and seen where used to be lots of ice, there you now can see also in February open sea, you understand that this is going quite quick. That's the bad news. The good news is that we can do something about it. For me, it's very important for Sweden, for Europe, and for the world to say that we can combine a high-growth policy with uh, a reduction of greenhouse gases. In Sweden, our economy has grown with 44% since 1990, at the same time while our emissions have declined by 9%. This is based on an environmental policy which defines itself on market economy, but also puts price on carbon and uses uh, different mechanisms to show the real cost and to get the public knowledge to turn away from uh, measures, costs, things that are done with a greater negative impact on the climate. We also understand that Sweden is not an alone in the world. We ourselves in Sweden stand for 0.2% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. If I'm to say to the electorate that we can solve this on our own, they will probably tell me to be crazy. We need a global answer to this global challenge. Therefore, we need to show what we have done in Europe. We need to say that we are responsible for a lot of these problems, but we need to put pressure to get a global agreement in place. And remember that Europe in itself, European Union, is not enough either. The portion of the greenhouse gases from the European Union in total is somewhere around 14% and declining. So the major parts of the greenhouse gas emission that we now see for the global warming is coming from other parts of the world. We also need to be there to put pressure, to get them to put a price on carbon and to do the things we have started to do. During the Swedish presidency to the European Union in the autumn of 2009, we hope to form an international agreement where we also see China, United States, India in place together with Europe and all the others that are now trying to match up to the challenge of climate change. 
it was very important what we did inside European Union last spring. We said 20% reduction to 2020. If it comes inside an international agreement, we will go to 30%. We will show the leadership, but we also need others to be there as well. This brings me back to my beginning, our Swedish model. If there is a such thing as a Swedish model, I would argue that in our globalized world, you have a choice. Spin the wheel of fortune or learn to navigate. This is what the new Swedish model is all about. It's a question of free enterprise, a market economy, an open attitude towards international competition. It's a question of fighting social exclusion and unemployment. It's a question of clear work first principle in labor market policy and social insurance. It's a question of welfare services that focus on knowledge, development and labor force participation. I could put it more precisely. Good pay for a hard day's work, responsibility among people, businesses and organizations, policies that encourage knowledge and entrepreneurship, a clear stand on the values of the open society and international cooperation. These are the core values of Sweden. But are they the wheels driving a new Swedish model or principles that stand for themselves and lay the ground for progress regardless of country, no matter where you look in our globalized world? Well, I leave that for you to decide. Thank you for listening. questions. We'll take them in groups of three. Can I ask for questions, please, and for them to be as terse as is possible? The gentleman there. There's a roving mic. Hello. Um, my name is Jay, and I study at the LSE. Um, I actually have two questions. I apologize in advance. Uh, because Could you one... just keep it to one, please? Oh. Okay, sure. Um, all right. Uh, my question is, I've actually read the speech that you've made at the European Parliament after the Treaty of Lisbon. And um, I was, yeah, I'm, I'm quite curious to know um, what your ideal vision of the European Union uh, would be in terms of the cooperation and interaction between the national um, parliament as, uh, and the European Parliament. The gentleman up on the balcony. Um, is, is Sweden's approach to, relatively liberal approach to immigration, sustainable in the long term? And what can other European countries learn from it? And gentleman just here. Mine is about your basis for the recent increase in interest rates. And when you join the euro, <laughs> well, first of all, inside the new um, 
treaty, there is to find a better uh, link for national parliaments regarding European Parliament. But it's very important for me to say that I think we need a strong Europe, as I said, in European Parliament, to be strong in the matters who is really exclusively for European structures to take care of, to fight climate change, to uh, combat international uh, crime, things like that. But to me, it's defined by subsidiarity that on other levels, national, regional, most of the cases for people to take the decision themselves, we don't need a European say all the time. So it's very important to define a European structure that works with truly European international uh, questions like that. Are the immigration policy of Sweden sustainable? Um, well, we are a liberal tradition, have a li liberal tradition in my country, which I think is very important in Europe of today. I think too many are raising the questions of new borders, uh, new measurements to keep people away from Europe, which is very hard for me to understand because Europe lacks uh, labor. We have demographical, demographical shifts where we should ask ourselves the question, how could we better put in place people coming to our countries to see that they get into work and can stand, uh, stand individually uh, with the capacity to support themselves. That's what we are trying to do in Sweden. I'm not taking the right turn that some others are doing to say that, no, we can't take more people and we should, should, close, should close down our country. I think that's the wrong path. But I'm very worried that that is, is done in a lot of parts of, of Europe. That put, puts pressure on the ones who are more open. Of the ones from, coming from Iraq today, more than half comes to Sweden alone. So, of course, that's, that is putting pressure on a small country. And we are having troubles to get all of them into the workforce. We are getting trouble with getting them to know Swedish. For some of them, we are not sure they are even staying in Sweden because it's dependent on the situation in Iraq. So if everyone is closing down their countries, we'll put enormous pressure on the ones who are still more open and liberal. But we are trying to be clear on our vision that we don't need more borders. We ne need to take away borders in Europe. Um, on the Euro, the Swedish referendum said no in 2003. We respect that. Without a shift in the opinion, uh, the question will not be asked again. And what was your question? Interest rate. It was uh, risen by the central bank. Yes, that was somewhat of a shock, and everywhere else uh, everyone is turning by, to talking about taking it down. But the thing is that we are, until now, less affected by the subprime crisis coming from U.S. We still have um, a very high participation rate in our labor market, and all of that shows that the Swedish economy is running very well, maybe with an impulse of inflation coming into the economy, and that's why there was the, the interest rate. Very conflicting signal in a European world where most of the interest rates, uh, rents are lowered. Okay, uh, gentleman just down there. Uh, I wanted to pursue the European Union. In, in your talk, you spoke of the European Union 
as a source of deregulation and liberalization. Um, in this country, as you will be aware, many people, including many in the Conservative Party, think that it's a source of regulation. Too much regulation, it's too damaging to employment. Do you think they are wrong? <laughs> the gentleman in the, in the middle on the, on the balcony. Thank you very much. My name is Yuan. All right. My question, as you related to yourself, the popularity of the government hasn't exactly been increasing over the last 18 months. So I was basically wondering, what are you going to do to turn it around and win the election in 2010? And, um, gentlemen here. Thank you. Uh, Liran, my name is Liran. As far as I understood what you said, it's simply that the Swedish third way has just died in the last couple of years. And that is to ask, aren't you afraid that the cost that the Swedish country is going to pay for this reform that you're implementing and you just presented is going to be the loss of basic values such as equality and solidarity which are basically what made the Swedish model such a myth around the Western world. Um, yeah, the question of European Union, thank you very much. Um, I love to answer these question, uh, questions in London especially. Uh, but but I, I pointed out that this was the Swedish experiences. Uh, it, was, it was clear to us, it was a deregulation to come into the internal market. Um, that, that's why I think, you know, in, in Sweden, it's the centre-right who is pro-European Union and the parties on the left who are against. Uh, so, and then you turn it around in other countries. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm just telling the Swedish experience. Um, and I, I believe that uh, a European Union should be working better if it actually means deregulation, getting the internal market to really work. Then it's an ex excellent idea. How to win in 2010? Well, just to remind you, um, elections are fought on election day and you win and lose that day. If we were winning on opinion polls, my party would have been in power for many, many decades in Sweden. Uh, but that's not the truth. Uh, the truth is that it is said on the election day. Next is in September 2010. What we are doing is that we are introducing a lot of reforms in a country who has seen very few reforms last decade. No one likes change. Well, you like change for your neighbors because they need it. <laughs> Desperately. But I'm fine. Don't knock on my door with change. And if you do, then you better prove that you're right. And I'm very skeptical. I'm Swedish. <laughs> if you're proven right, we'll have a talk again. So, it's, it's too early to say. Third way. Well, I lived my life in this third way country. I think it was better outside, maybe, than sometimes inside. Um, and my point is, it has never been wrong with the welfare ambitions. I'm 
pointed out as actually very important for me to keep the good intentions, to have high quality in the welfare institutions, uh, precisely to, to be able to say what you are saying with equality between men and women, between keeping society together. My criticism is that it was not working as well as it should and that working participation, the fact that we could concentrate our efforts to a few standing aside of the labor market instead of huge portions of people able to work, shifted the perception of how well the model were working or not. So I'm restoring uh, the good idea, and if I'm successful, then we will be able to tell again that in Sweden most people are working and we have high welfare ambitions for both the one in the workforce and those outside. The lady at the back had a question. If you could just wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. Um, it's incredibly refreshing to hear uh, Swedish voice here, and I wish the Brits would listen, especially perhaps the Conservative Party. But uh, uh, my name is Sigrun Davidsdotter. I'm an Icelandic journalist. Um, somebody said to me once that there was actually only one day where there was a Swedish majority for a, a EU membership, and that happened to be the day when the referendum was. Um, I was just wondering uh, what you think that uh, a Euro membership would uh, do for Sweden, and wouldn't you like to be strongly advocating for it? The gentleman just, just behind the lady with the webbing mic. Thanks for your talk, firstly. Um, I'm a regular visitor of your country, um, and I'm quite curious, since you spoke so much about liberalization, what are you going to do about system Bulaget? <laughs> and we'll have one, one more question up, at the, up at the, on the balcony. Yeah, that, the gentleman with the dark blue sweater. Uh, I was just curious who, who you have your bets on for the U.S. presidential election, and why? Who? Who, who you have your bets on for the U.S. presidential election? Yeah. Okay. And, and why? Uh, that's good. Okay. Euro membership. Well, I, I think it was a little bit tougher than that. That uh, it was not just an accident that day. Um, we, uh, in my party, in our alliance, uh, most of us, I should say, are pro the euro. Um, we see now that the Danish is calling a referendum probably this autumn. If they were to say yes, and we actually were to see a euro both in Denmark, Finland, and surrounding us at the Baltic Sea, it might change the perception in Sweden. I'm not sure. But then again, um, a lot were telling that we had a weak corona which is not very true because it's, it's performed um, splendidly and therefore it's very hard to argue in that sense. Um, to me, it's a non-issue this mandate period. It might turn up again after 2010 and might be affected by Denmark. That's, that's what I can tell today. I think it's fantastic to come to London. Someone says, Systembolaget, and everyone is laughing. I thought... Um, are you really sure you know what Systembolaget is? <laughs> Maybe you do. Um, then you know a lot about Sweden. Well, that's the monopoly structure where you are allowed to uh, buy liquors in Sweden, and only there, and no one else. Uh, the thing is that this was more of an item 
a few decades ago. Why? Because Systembolaget were never opened. Uh, it, you could never find it, actually, because it was in such few places. And the idea of that company was that you should be ashamed of yourself coming into the... Uh, <laughs> and, and it worked. <laughs> so ev everyone was ashamed to go into this facility, and you had to go to the front bench where a very, very tense person stood and asked, what do you want? <laughs> I would like a bottle of wine. <laughs> and, and you felt that I, I can't ask for two because they were... <laughs> uh, so some of us had the idea to leave this, uh, how should I call it, um, not so very perf well-performing service institution. Uh, but the thing is that European Union membership, again, affected this because they said you can't keep the monopoly as you've had it. You have to have bigger access, and now we have Systembolaget nearly everywhere. And you can go in yourself and take a basket and fill it yourself. The ones that are standing at the discs are gone. Well, they're still there, but they don't have the power anymore. So I think the perception is different. So we said, let, let's keep on. But my party, my party, not my total coalition, um, is pro to say that wine and, and beer could be sold in, uh, in regular shops. Uh, that's what we think. But it's a shift in, in Sweden. I think you know that as well. Well, the bet's on the United States. That's, that's interesting. Um, I think... Uh, I, well, I think... Um, John McCain is probably uh, a better guy to put your bets on than we believe in Europe um, because I, I read uh, Bill Clinton's memoirs and he said that U.S. is structurally Republican. Then I know, of course, that George W. Bush is not popular, but one should remember that it's not so much a race only among Democrats as it's described in my country. Um, it's easier to to like these Democrats because they are very European in their thinking and their style. I read through what Barack Obama wants to do, and as I said to very um, shocked Swedish journalists, I said, well, it's very hard to be against what you, are you yourself are doing in Sweden because he introduces the same kind of lowering of taxation with the same uh, structure, actually, as we are doing in Sweden. So in part, I believe that is good with Barack Obama. I don't like that he is for protection against free trade. In that sense, John McCain is better. John McCain is very impressive in his stand on uh, climate change. He introduced a cap idea to get, together with Joe Lieberman very many years ago. Th this is important to say. And I, I can see that Barack Obama is, is writing a lot about this, but I'm not sure if they are, are prepared to, to use the means to combat climate change. So it's a combination. Uh, but don't forget that, as it looks now, John McCain is probably up with a better chance than we believe. Unfortunately, we're going to have to stop the question and answer session there. Thank you for well, such a wonderful speech. Thank you. chance to thank the Prime Minister again in five minutes, but I'd also like to thank you at this moment for such full, frank and witty uh, answers to the questions. And I'd also like the audience to join me in uh, warmly welcoming David Cameron to the podium.
Thank you. It is a great honour to give a vote of thanks to Prime Minister Reinfeldt for his lecture this evening. I told my wife I was going to be spending the early part of the evening with the new Swedish model. Uh, she was... <laughs> she was... She was... Um, She was slightly surprised by this and slightly more surprised when I explained he was called Frederick. Um, <laughs> and even more surprised when I said I was bringing him home for dinner. Oh, right. um, exactly. But she's looking forward to welcoming you and I hope the drink will flow a bit more freely than in these shops you've been explaining in, in your country. I think you gave a fascinating explanation of what you called the lost 25 years in Swedish history and what you've done. And while you explained it in such a simple way, of making work pay, making it easier to employ people, making it easier to set up a business. It actually takes, takes true, true courage in politics to turn these simple things into action. And as was said, there is a lot the Conservative Party can learn from the Swedish moderates. How to win an election. <laughs> how to win an election when you're about 40 years old. But most important, how changing your party is just the precursor of changing your country. And listening to your lecture today, I think one thing is absolutely clear. Your program for Sweden, your new Swedish model, isn't just change for change's sake. It is real, bold, and lasting change designed to make a real, bold, and lasting change for the people of your country. Reforming the welfare system to get more people off benefits and into work. Reforming health care so the consumer is in control, not the state getting the education system to respond to the wishes of parents and the needs of individual children. These are all things that we are examining in this country. These changes will not be easy. And indeed, for a country like Sweden, which has a tra proud tradition of government based on a highly developed and funded welfare state, they could well be uncomfortable, but they will be necessary. And I just want to take a moment to say why I think this sort of change is so necessary in Sweden, in Britain, and all across Europe. And that is because, although you have got public services that are the envy of the world, although, according to UNICEF, your children are the second happiest in the world, and although your society is both strong and cohesive, these changes are necessary because of something much more profound and more deep about how the world is changing. For decades, information, power, and control have been monopolized by well-meaning public officials. It was they who made top-down decisions for people, thinking they knew what was right and what was best. Now, in the days before the information revolution, you could just about argue you had to trust the state because it wasn't practical to share this information, for people to make choices, for people to take control. But that just isn't true anymore. Dynamic change in commerce and in our broader culture are helping to make the top-down model history. The Internet is transforming people's lives making their ambitions greater and their horizons broader. And the future really is bottom-up. And I think this is a wonderful thing for those of us on the centre-right political tradition, because we've always been motivated by an instinctive scepticism of the capacity of bureaucratic systems to deliver progress. We've always believed in freedom, in human potential, in the idea that the strength of our society comes from the energy, the industry and creativity of our people. So if we get things right... I believe we can move confidently into a post-bureaucratic era where true freedom of information makes possible a new world of people power, of responsibility, of citizenship, of choice, and of local control.
And it's not just the Conservative Party or the Swedish moderates who get this change. It is happening all over the world. And I think it is the centre-right that is on the rise. We see it with Nicolas Sarkozy reforming the French labour market to create more jobs. Angela Merkel arguing for a transatlantic common market so we can be on the side of enterprise on both sides of the Atlantic. Stephen Harper in Canada reforming childcare, giving parents greater choice in the services they use. And in New York, Mayor Bloomberg driving up standards in that city's schools by decentralizing education, giving parents more choice, encouraging smaller schools. And, of course, there is Arnold Schwarzenegger in California. <laughs> he has outlined a positive vision of environmental reform, as you have, as others have, based on knowledge, technology, market-based solutions, and empowering people to take the right decisions. So I believe, Frederick, from California to Germany, from Britain to Scandinavia, from Central Europe to Canada, the centre-right is on the way because we have the right ideas for the right time in our history. And I think you gave a wonderful demonstration of that this evening. And on behalf of everyone here at the London School of Economics, I'd like to thank you for coming, for your excellent lecture, and for your visit to London here today. Thank you. this session. Before people go, could I just make three quick announcements? The first is to invite you to the 16th session of the Future of Europe series, which is tomorrow at 5 o'clock. It's given by Hans-Hert Pertering, and it's on the dialogue ahead of the European Parliament, dialogue of cultures or clash of civilizations, head also of the European People's Party, continuing the right of centre theme. Secondly, as a courtesy to our speakers, could you please remain in your seats until after they have left the room? Finally, and most enjoyably and most importantly, it was topped off by a fantastic response by the Right Honourable David Cameron, but it was a wonderful tour de force, your speech. It was rich, thoughtful, and very, very witty. You saw the photos of various people that have uh, spoken on this stage. In that tradition, where they've all received one of these, we would like you to... Uh, have one as well, it is your, they decide whether to wear it or not. <laughs>